Let us pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity to gather in your house, Father, and worship you. We pray, Lord, you'd be with Brother Jason as he proclaims your message, Lord, and just touch our hearts, that we might seek your will for our lives, Father, that we may be able to apply your word to our life, Father, that we may just learn, Father, and go out upon the world and teach others. Father, we just thank you for again for this opportunity to be here. Pray that your will will be done and lead God and direct us in your holy, precious name, Father. Amen. Sorry, I'm not as efficient as Brother Jason to put my spectacles on. Uh, if you're physically able, would you please stand as we read God's Word this morning? Uh, it comes from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. When are we even found to be misrepresenting God? Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this day, Father. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for Brother Jason. We pray that you just be with him as he presents your word to us, Father, that we have open hearts to receive it, that we be able to understand and apply it to our lives, Lord. In your holy, precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you, brother, for reading for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have, as we looked at last week, one of the earliest depictions of what the church focused on when it came to the gospel of Christ, what the early church saw as of first importance, as Paul put it. And one of the things that we see in the text we saw last week was the vitalness of the resurrection of Jesus in the gospel. That apart from that, the gospel was not complete. And this morning, Paul is going to go even further in that description, so much so as to prove to us that apart from the resurrection, everything crumbles with regards to Christianity. Everything we believe, everything we hold dear, loses if the resurrection is not true. I want to share with you a quote this morning from Tim Keller who said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. 
This is central. So what we're studying this morning is nothing less than the very foundation of everything you and I believe and exercise in our lives as Christians. If the resurrection is not true, then we are foolish people to be here. And what I want to show you this morning is how vital the resurrection is and what it means for us that it is true. Now, we looked last week at the first few verses of chapter 15 up to verse 11 where Paul was laying out the basics of the gospel that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he rose again, and that he appeared to all of these witnesses. And Paul says that he has delivered that to them because he received that testimony himself and he was passing it on to them. That everything revolved around this Jesus. He was the key, the center to everything they believe. The centrality of the resurrection to our faith is clear from what Paul teaches. And what we, th- what we have here in 1 Corinthians 15 is probably one of the earliest sections of Scripture that we have in the entire New Testament. As such, what's written here is foundational for everything we believe and trust in. Now, in the verses previous, Paul received the gospel. He says it spread quickly, quickly enough that the resurrection could have been refuted if somebody wished to do so, but the resurrection was central to the good news of Jesus. Now, what we're going to find as we get into this text this morning is that there are some who challenge this gospel that Paul has taught. I want you to notice in verse 12, says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So what do we learn right off the bat about the church in Corinth in the first century? There are some in the church who for one reason or another discounted the resurrection of the dead. That people were not going to be raised from the dead, that it was not going to take place. And denying or refuting the resurrection, just so you know, is necessary to destroy the gospel message, which is why I believe so many people, critics of Christianity, put so much of their efforts into refuting what? The resurrection. If they can prove that the resurrection did not happen, then the rest of it goes with it. And so what you find is that a lot of academia spends their time challenging the, uh, the authenticity of the resurrection itself. Uh, just so you know, next time you turn on the History Channel and they're talking about trying to find Jesus' bones, the whole goal, I believe, is to discount the resurrection. Because if you can find Jesus' bones, then we're done here. We're done. But here's the thing, they won't find them. They won't find them. You know why they won't find the bones of Jesus? He still has them. They're his. You're not going to find them anywhere. But critics of Christianity are going to put their efforts into discounting this central doctrine of Christianity. Now, what Paul goes on to line out for these folks in the church in Corinth, there are some who are saying that the resurrection of the dead is not going to happen, and they're trying to go about their merry Christian way. And what Paul's about to show them is if, if you discount the resurrection of the dead, then you've got nothing else to go on. And he wants to show that to them. He wants to show them the necess- what, what naturally comes out of a belief that there is no resurrection. These are the natural consequences 
if you believe there is no resurrection. So if you're a Sadducee, this is where you would arrive at. He says in verse 13, I love how Paul does this too, because what Paul does is he takes what you said and then he beats it to death. You know what I mean? Like you ever had that person in your life where you say something and they take what you said and then they just crush you with it by breaking it down for you to the point where you get to the end and go, oh yeah, that was a dumb statement. I'm sorry about that. That's almost what Paul does here because he starts with this. He says, verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, let's assume these people are correct, he says. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So what I'm going to give you are the consequences of no resurrection. Number one, Christ has not been raised. If that's the case, Jesus is a liar. He's not who he said he was. He said he would rise from the grave. John chapter 11 tells us that. If Jesus has not been raised, then there was no miracle. Someone must have stolen his body, or is th there is some other natural reason to explain the missing body of Christ. But primary to me in that whole thing is, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then he's a liar. And why would you want to follow him? If there is no resurrection of the dead, Paul says, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14, he takes the natural consequence of that view. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So number two, preaching is pointless. This is a real bummer for me. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Notice he's including himself in that. If Jesus is still dead, we have no good news to share. There is no hope. There is no purpose to life. We are left with nothing but our own guilt before God. If Jesus has not been raised, then our preaching is pointless. We have nothing of value to share with anyone else that is worth anything. Number three, your faith is pointless. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If the object of our faith, Jesus, if he is still dead, then so is our faith. You have nothing or no one to trust in. There is no point to having faith in a dead teacher. There is no benefit to having faith or trust in someone who can't conquer death himself. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, our faith is in vain, and as such, there is no hope of life to come. John Calvin said, There is seen nothing but ground of despair, for he cannot be the author of salvation to others who has been altogether vanquished by death. Jesus can't offer anything because he's dead. The life he promised, the joy he promised, the blessing he promised, it's gone if Jesus has not been raised. And everything we do as a church is pointless.
I wish Paul would say what he really thinks. Look at verse 15. Here's number four. If Christ has not been raised, your pre- our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. He says we are even found, in verse 15, to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. So number four, if Christ has not been raised, we are all, every single one of you who believe in him, We are all liars. Everyone who professes Christ and beckons others to trust in him, every preacher, every Sunday school teacher, every friend who has ever shared Christ is found to be selling a fraud, a hoax, like one of those spam messages you shouldn't report to, the Nigerian prince who needs you to hold his money in the bank before he can come over and get it. Without the resurrection, the Bible is nothing. Without the resurrection, the Bible is nothing but a book of a bunch of myths and superstitions. If Jesus has not been raised without the resurrection, then we have nothing to trumpet that's true. For he says we've trumpeted something as true when in fact it isn't. And just so you know, then, he's including himself. The apostles, then, were peddlers of lies. They claimed to have seen Jesus alive. If he has not been raised, then you should not trust a single thing that any of the apostles told you. I don't know about you. That means we're going to have to start ripping out our New Testaments. Okay. You get what Paul's saying? The resurrection of Jesus is kind of important when it comes to what we believe and what we live. In fact, if Jesus is not raised, a lot of what you base your life on is worthless. Just in case you thought that was enough, there's more. He goes on and says, for if, Christ, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your what? Sins. Uh-oh. If the resurrection is not true, if Christ has not been raised, then not only are we all liars, but he says we're still in our sins. That means if Christ has not been raised, there is no hope of forgiveness Only the indictment for our sin. We are not really forgiven people, but rather we stand condemned, destined to be eternally separated from God in hell. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we have no payment for our sin that covers us. And that means when we stand before God, every single one of us is going off into eternal separation from God forever. I almost feel like Paul saying, how's that argument holding up, folks? Those of you who believe there is no resurrection of the dead, where's that leading you to? Not only that, but sin still reigns now then. 
Because Christ has not destroyed the works of the devil, as he said, but rather Satan truly sits as the conquering king. If there is no resurrection, Satan is the conquering king. There is no grace, no substitute, no hope of any kind for any forgiveness of any sin whatsoever. We are under the wrath of God. He goes further. Notice what he says, verse 18. Then also, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That means every person who has died is lost to eternal damnation. Every single person who's ever lived. If there is no resurrection, if Christ has not been raised, then every person, no exception, is lost to eternal damnation. And just so you know, if there's no resurrection, that means no reunion with grandma. It means no reunion in heaven. It means no Revelation chapter 4 singing around the throne of God. There's no cries of worthy is the lamb who was slain. No reason to sing of the glory and honor and power of Jesus. If he did not rise from the dead, no Revelation 21, no new heaven, no new earth, nothing gone, erased. All that's left is judgment. Finally, as if that wasn't enough, he gives this statement. And this is where it drives home for us today, right? Because um, I don't know how many people in here discount the resurrection or how many people in here struggle with believing in the resurrection. I don't know how many of you do that, but here's what we land on that means something personal. He says in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus has not been raised, and if we only have hope of living right now in this life, then he says Christians are the most pitiful people that roam the earth. Just so you know, that's Paul included. All the apostles. If Jesus has not been raised, everyone should feel sorry for us. They should look at us as we pass on the street and go, silly, silly people who are ruining the only life they have, chasing after myths and legends and superstitions. Those people have blown this entire life they've been given. We are most to be pitied. Now, I don't know, we pity some people, don't we? But to be most pitied of everyone? Paul says that is the natural consequence. If you do not believe in the resurrection, then this is what flows. I want you to notice, though, that Paul doesn't leave it there. I had our Paul read to verse 19. I, I guess that's because I was saving the best for me. I wanted to read this kind of selfishly because in verse 20, it all changes. Paul has laid out, if you don't believe in the resurrection, these are all the natural consequences. He's a liar. Everyone's a liar. We're all still stuck in sin. No hope for redemption. Lost into eternal damnation. Every person who has ever lived. Verse 20. But... Every person in this room should underline 
circle, star, that word. Because in that word, everything changes. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Listen, Paul's job here, the reason Paul's writing is not just to smack them across the face. It's not just to say, oh, how, how silly and ignorant are you guys. His point is not to just beat them and berate them with the word of God. Paul's point is to get them to the true gospel, the real glorious news, the good news of the fact that Jesus, in fact, has been raised from the dead. He is not in a grave somewhere. You will not find his bones because he is alive. And Paul says, I am a witness of the fact that he, in fact, raised from the dead. Paul says, I'm here to stand and tell you as a church that Jesus appeared to me. He showed me himself. And as such, I'm here to proclaim to you, Paul says, he, in fact, has been raised. Well, then all of those consequences get inverted, which, by the way, is what God is in the business of doing. He takes our, our upside-down world, and he puts it right side up. Because, in fact, Christ has been raised. We see that even in the lives of the apostles. We see that in Acts chapter two, chapter 4. Uh, we see the boldness in which the apostles preached. We see Peter proclaiming the resurrected Christ at Pentecost. We see them saying it as the basis for everything they put their hope in. What, I ask you, what would cause men to go from absolute fear to absolute boldness? What would account for that type of transformation but the raised Jesus. What a drastic change in the life of the apostles. They go from fleeing for their lives to boldly proclaiming in front of everyone that Jesus is alive. So, let's readjust our consequences, shall we? You have them written there in your notes as a good little student. Let's go back through them. But in fact, number one, Christ has been raised. So he's not a liar. He is the son of God. It was a miracle of the father raising his son. That means you can believe what Jesus tells you. He said he would rise from the dead, and he did. And as such, you can bank on every promise Jesus ever made. If he can deliver on coming back to life from being dead, he can deliver on all the others. Trust me. Number two, our preaching is meaningful, not worthless. Our preaching is meaningful. That means we do have good news as Christians. We have the message of life. Jesus is teaching in John chapter 6, and he's teaching all these difficult sayings. He's saying, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you can have no part with me. And John tells us in his gospel that many of the followers of Jesus turned away and stopped following. They said, who can follow this type of teaching? And Jesus turns to his disciples. And he says, are you guys going to go too? And Peter 
looks at Jesus and says, where else can we go? You're the only one who has the words of eternal life. Where else can we go, Jesus? Who else is there that can speak about life in the midst of death? Not only did he preach it, Jesus walked it because he got up out of the grave. So our preaching is meaningful. Good news for me, right? Good news for you when you stand in your workplace and you proclaim Jesus as the right and honorable king. All those missionary efforts, all those efforts of trying to share Christ with people, they are absolutely meaningful precisely because Jesus rose from the dead. Oh, that's good news. Brother Bob, you have not wasted your whole life. I'm glad to be able to proclaim to you today. You have not wasted your life in ministry. Miss Dotley, you have not wasted your life in ministry. Your preaching, your ministry has been absolutely valuable because Jesus rose from the dead. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for folks like Brother Bob and Miss Dotley who dedicate their lives to preaching the gospel because they proclaim to you, this is real. Jesus is the king. And he rose from the grave. And thank you guys for proclaiming that over and over again. He gets it, doesn't he? Number three, our faith has substance. It's not worthless. Our faith has substance. Because Christ is risen, risen death has been conquered, and life eternal is a reality. That means we do have hope. Our faith is in the one who is trustworthy and he will deliver. So we have hope in this life knowing that this isn't it. This isn't it. We have hope. Number four, we aren't liars. We aren't liars, but we are absolutely proclaiming the truth. And all of those who have shared the gospel and brought the good news of Jesus have brought you the truth. Like I mentioned, that's a really good thing for preachers to hear. It's a really good thing for Sunday school teachers to hear. It's a really good thing for teachers who teach our youth and our children to hear. When you proclaim the good news of the gospel, you are proclaiming truth, not falsehood. Number five, we are not in our sins. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we are not in our sins. When we have been forgiven, we are actually forgiven. We do not stand condemned before God. We stand as victorious. We stand vindicated. We are declared righteous because of what Jesus has done. Satan does not reign as king. Jesus does. Satan is not the Almighty. Jesus is. That means there is grace. That means there is a substitute. That means there is hope for every sinner who is lost and gone astray. There is hope for you because Christ has raised from the dead. Which means his sacrifice has been accepted by the Father. The Father is pleased with the sacrifice Jesus gave. And he declared it by raising him. From the dead. Number six, those believers who have died, we will be reunited with them. Believers who have gone on before us will be with us 
when we are around the throne of God, singing eternally to him praises evermore. We know this to be true because Jesus rose from the dead. Every loved one you've lost who has trusted in Christ, every loved one you have lost, and it rips a hole in your heart because you miss them so desperately, every loved one who has trusted in Christ and has perished, they will be reunited with us, and we will together sing of the glory of Christ forevermore. Every one of them. And it's all because Jesus rose from the dead. He is the reason for all our hopes. And finally, number seven, Christians are not to be pitied. Don't let anyone pity you as a Christian. Don't let them look down on you with scorn and contempt as a Christian because you believe these things. We are not to be pitied because the testimony of God's word, the testimony of the early church, the testimony of the people who were closest to these things happening tell us definitively these things happened. Jesus rose and you can bank on it. I have a hard time believing that Paul would willingly go to his own death knowing he was going for a lie. But all the apostles go to their graves proclaiming this truth. Jesus conquered death and is alive. We are victorious over death through Christ. We see that. We're going to see that as we continue to go in this text, as we get to the resurrection body and all that's going to follow. But what I want to share with you this morning is there is no ridicule. There is no shame. There is only victory for Christians. We have hope. We have joy. And we have it today. And we'll have it everlasting when we're with him forever. Christians are not most to be pitied. We have the truth. We have hope. We have joy and we have life everlasting. What is there to pity about that? We are blessed. Because of Jesus' resurrection, all of these things have been purchased for us, for his glory. God did all of this not because he wanted us to pat ourselves on the back and say, look. God did all of this to do what? To show that he is the amazing creator God who is merciful and gracious towards his people. He did it to show he is the real God. There is none other besides him. He did it to show that you can trust him. He is worthy of all praise. He did it to show you himself and to say that he deserves all of your worship. Every breath you have in your lungs should be to the praise of his name. He did it to show how big he is. And so every time we talk about the resurrection, every time we talk about the blessings that Christ has purchased for us, they're all there to drive us to our knees before a holy God to give him the praise he ultimately deserves. And one day we will all be around his throne and we will praise him as the all-conquering, slaughtered lamb who is alive again forevermore. We will praise him always. The resurrection is kind of important. If you dismiss the resurrection, the rest of it falls. And there is no basis for hope. But because Christ raised from the dead, everything we hold valuable, 
everything we hold true, everything we put our hope in has been vindicated in Christ. It has been purchased by him, and we can rest today knowing he's done that for us to the praise of his glorious name. I'll read you this last little hymn, little poem, and then we'll close. The promise is fulfilled. Redemption's work is done. Justice with mercies reconciled, for God has raised his son. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I am so thankful that you are alive right now and that you're alive forevermore. And God, I am so grateful that your love has been poured out on us as sinners. God, we see from your word that you are a holy, awesome, perfect creator, God. And Lord, we see in our own lives that we are broken sinners, God. We rebel against you. Our sin is cosmic treason against you. It's us trying to throw you off of your throne. But God, you will not be thrown off of your throne. And God, I thank you that you are gracious enough to point out to us that we are not the king, but you are. And you're gracious, God, to point out to us that we are frail, we are weak people, we are sinners who would easily drift off into eternal separation if not for your patience and love and grace towards us. And so, God, I pray you would show us once again the beauty of Jesus. God, show us again the beauty of Christ. God, let us fix our eyes to him. The one who not only lived a sinless life, not only died on the cross, not only was buried in the tomb, but your son whom you raised to show that you accepted his sacrifice for our sin. And God, we give you praise this morning for the fact that we are no longer in our sin. When we put our trust in you, God, we are declared righteous. We are declared redeemed. And that any time we stand before you, God, we will not face the consequences of our sin. We will simply be forgiven and pardoned and given eternal life. Oh, God, you alone deserve praise for all of this. God, help me to thank you for that. Help me to love you as I should. Help me to put my trust fully in you, God. Help me every day to see the surpassing beauty of Christ above all else. Lord, I pray you'll do that this morning. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone in this room who's trying to earn acceptance with you, if there's anyone in this room who's trying to do good things that you might accept them and allow them into heaven, God, I pray that they might see that that, in fact, is a worthless task. That no amount of good can ever make up for our sin. But God, I pray what they'll see this morning is not try harder or do better. I pray what they'll see this morning is trust Jesus. Trust in his death on the cross for their sin. Trust in his work and not their own. So God, I pray that you might draw them to yourself and rescue them, God. Give them new hearts. Put your spirit within them. Cause them to walk after you in holiness. God, do that this morning. Rescue them. And God, for the Christians in the room, help us to cling to you. Help us to realize that what Jesus has done is all that's needed to not only purchase our pardon, but to present us faultless in your presence. To you alone, God be praise and honor and glory forever.
Help us as a church to be bold in proclaiming the good news that our King is alive. Lord, I pray that we'll worship you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.